0: start a new series. As Ron said, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of of, uh, Luke, Luke chapter 2. This won't surprise anybody. We're going to Luke chapter 2. I don't think I'm going to sneak up on anybody with this sermon series on Christmas. I think we're all familiar with Christmas. Uh, But I hope that we can come away with some things that uh, are practical for us to apply uh, today. And so again, if you're a guest with us, we're so glad that you're joining us. If you didn't have the courage to raise your hand and get a guest bag, that's cool. Um, Again, you can text a 90 uh hbf guest to ninety four thousand, or you can go to the connections counter and that uh, we do hope if you did get a bag that you drop a guest card in the offering plate as it goes by at the end of service that'd be a great gift to us just to get to know you a little better <clears throat> and so we are glad that you're joining us online shout out to <clears throat> Dottie bartlett she said i will be watching so be praying for her she's recovering um from her illness or covid and and uh there's others like uh um, Sonia, who is also out recovering from uh, her ailments. So just be in prayer for our church family, as there's many that are out. And uh, I see the blues. I think, of uh, uh, Austin. He just had a car wreck, so he's recovering. He's probably not watching us online, but uh, be praying for him as well. So uh, just uh, <clears throat> as you uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 and verse 10, uh, that's where we're going to start off. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, you can grab one from the seat rack in front of you. And turn to page 1,359. If there's, one not, there's not a Bible right in front of you, you can probably get one around you, somewhere behind you, near you, ask somebody to grab one from the seat around them, and there are some scattered about. We'll be on page 1,359. And, uh, and so this will be our first sermon series, or our first sermon of the series, uh, Peace on Earth. And so today we'll be examining the promise of peace. Next week we'll be talking about the person of peace. Uh, then we 'll be talking about the problem of peace on the twenty sixth and then the power or on the nineteenth I should say rather, and then on the twenty sixth the power of peace. so uh, peace is a priority it 's a priority for people, for families, for cultures, for countries, uh, and of course the world. yet it is very uh, elusive so because uh, we continue to drift further and further from the promise of the person of peace, which is the Lord, um, in the next few weeks, I just pray that God gives us just some good insight on how we can have peace in our hearts through the Lord Jesus Christ and share that with the world around us. So let's do this. Let's begin by reading the book of Luke. Uh, Chapter 10 is where we're going to pick it up. Or chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 10 is where we're going to pick it up. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Luke 2, 10. Uh, Of course, this is the account of the birth of Christ. And in verse 9, it talks about the angel uh, coming upon them, the shepherds that were abiding by night. And in verse 10, it says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the <coughs> uh, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill men. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage and we consider you, how peace has come to earth. At this moment, the angels proclaim that, Lord, this world has been in a, a bad state for many generations, going all the way to Adam. And Lord, it is you, the one that brings peace in the midst of the chaos, Lord, that we are calling upon now to help calm our hearts and our minds from all the hustle and bustle, all the activity, all the things that are going on in our lives, Lord. And Help us today just focus on your word for a season uh, where we can really just come away with some things that we can apply. And Lord, I pray that the peace of God would dwell in our hearts, the joy of the Lord would be our strength, that we would know you as we just talked about, as we sang about, and that we would be able to share you with everybody, Lord, the gift of life, the Lord Jesus, especially in the next several weeks as we focus on your advent, your first coming. Lord, we're so thankful that you came to the earth and you died on on the cross for our sins, that you rose on the third day. You're alive right now and you're teaching us all things. Whatsoever you said to us, And Lord, I pray, God, that you would continue to do that for your honor and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Those words are pregnant with meaning as we consider the promise of peace. One of the things that the Jews were looking for for centuries was this promised Messiah. Uh, who would come as, of course, the Prince of Peace? Isaiah nine six, a familiar passage to most people. Um, uh, I didn't know it until I became a Christian. But uh, you know, Grace Slick was singing this in the '90s or in the, in the '60s, I should say, when she was with Jefferson Airplane before my time. So even the world's been singing about this for a long time. Isaiah nine six, it says, "For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And then the last part of that verse says, the Prince of Peace. And so how elusive that peace seems to be in the world in which we live. Yet the promise of peace has been present from the beginning of Scripture. So this morning we're going to examine three aspects of the promise of peace that will help segue us into next week's message on the person of peace. And so we're going to see the need for peace and then the promise for peace. So as we look at the need for peace, I've given you a thesis statement, and that is that the strata of society suffers from the absence or void of biblical peace. You know, there's the peace that the world gives, and there's the peace of Christ, and they're completely different. This world has a peace, um, and it's, it's not the same thing as what the, as what the Lord offers us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And our society suffers from this absence of biblical peace. It suffers from uh, this void of Jesus Christ. I've spent enough time around enough people to see that very clearly. And so if you're on your outline following along, the thing that we're going to see here at point A, um, there's need for peace today, right? There's a need, the need for peace today. That's an easy point to make, an easy argument, but I want to give you some factoids just to start with the macro and work our way down to the micro. Uh, Point one here would be the world peace, right? In 1914, H.G. Wells promoted the theory in his book, The War That Will End War, um, <clears throat> in reference to World War I, it was supposedly going to be the war to end war, and it didn't take long for politicians to pick up on that and say that World War I is the war to end all wars. How many of you have heard that before, right? I mean, we learned that in, in history when we were in school. And, of course, uh, it led to the most devastating war, World War, right after that, World War II. So it was far from the, world, uh, the, the war to end all wars, uh, the Gentile powers shifted. God gave uh, Israel the land in 1918, which was the advent of World War One. And then Israel, the nation of Israel, didn't assemble in the land. So in 1948, uh, through the use of uh, World War Two, God uh, allowed that war. Not that He's all for war, but He allowed the Gentiles to continue to let, let their blood over the property of Europe, so that uh, ultimately, in His providence, the the children of Israel would return. So our own Harry Truman, of course, signed. That into uh law, he turned it from the land of Palestine to the land of Israel, and Israel was birthed. And uh, the nation of Israel is uh, really what all geopolitical activity rotates around to this day. And uh, without getting into a lot of discussions about prophecy, we understand that uh, war is far from over. As a matter of fact, uh, the largest war and the largest battle is yet to come. Of course, we know about the valley of Megiddo and Israel will end uh, at the end of the, uh, the tribulation will be a massive battle. The blood will be a bridle deep. I mean, it's going to be terrible, um, the battle that goes on there. And uh, it will also be glorious because Jesus wins that one. And, ends, and literally, that will be the war, the end all wars. Uh, but really, the war for us has been won because of Christ. So as I speak to the, the threat of world peace, uh, the world's aware of that. You don't have to be... A, Christians are like at peace about it. We know what's going to happen. We know how it's going to happen. So we rest and the God of, of 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 prophecy, right? That's really I'm going to talk a little bit about prophecy today. We understand that we believe that God's word is true, so we're not like encumbered with a lot of care. We shouldn't be, right? We're to be careful for nothing. Like we're not we're, supposed, we're not supposed to be encumbered with care. But yet, even the world, you don't have to be a Christian. When I was lost, man, I you know I grew up in the era where we were worried about um, you know. Nuclear weapons going off all over the place, you know, and and uh, and you know, hiding under the desk isn't going to do any good. Once a nuke goes off, you're just you know obliterated, and so um, so you know, I remember driving to the lake counting the missile silos, you know, and you know, so you always had this 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 uh, threat looming over your head that that any day, any moment, you know, the guy in Russia, uh, remember Brezhnev, he had like one unibrow, one big eyebrow, and all the way across his head. That's kind of imposing, you know, it was about that thick and about this wide, and he's uh, you know. <clears throat> and so, most of you are like, who's Brezhnev? I'm dating myself. But when I was a kid, you know, Brezhnev was the, the dude, and, and uh, I, don't, I was too young to remember. Who's that other guy with the shoe? Um, Khrushchev. Yeah, yeah, I was too young to remember his antics. Um, but I do remember the guy with the map on his head, right? Glasnost, And, and every, then everybody started breathing a, a, a sigh of relief, right? When you had, uh, who's that fella? I forgot his name. Gorbachev, right, Gorbachev comes along, thank you, you guys are good, doing good, um, helping the preacher out, and you can tell all that's in my notes, right? No, obviously not, and so, so Gorbachev comes along, and, uh, and now there's peace, and just for a minute, it's like, oh, we can, we can re, you know, rest easy, uh, the, big cold, the, the big bad Cold War is not as cold as, or not as hot as it used to be, and, uh, you know, and then we're wrapping up Central America And uh, Sandinistas and Contras. And it looks like things are kind of coming to an end. And then, of course, not, right? War breaks out for another. The longest engagements we've had have been since then with the the wars in the Middle East, Uh, whether it be in Iraq and or Afghanistan. And so it has continued on. And so if you're not saved, and uh, I know what it's like to live in an environment where you're always like, you know, thinking that, you know, the sky's going to fall on you. That does not leave peace in your heart. It doesn't. And I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy here, I'm just saying. Uh, this is the world in which we live. And of course, uh, uh, re- right now we're in a trade war. I mean, I don't think I hear a lot of people talking about it, but it's pretty obvious. You know, as soon as we win the trade war, uh, all of a sudden we're in a war for our economy and everything else. And so uh, it's much like the Cold War. But this war could heat up really quick. You know, all you've got to do is see China take over Taiwan or Russia take over Ukraine Um, you know, and it's hot, it's on. You know, a lot of people don't even know that we hit the Ruskies last, the United States, um, in the last president. We actually, in Syria, we we literally attacked the Russians. I mean, that's, we had a, for a moment, we, you know, we touched swords for a minute. And so those wars, you know, those those things, those big picture things we used to worry about, right, they kind of gotten all pushed aside with social issues, but they're still out there. As a matter of fact, we know prophetically there's still going to continue to be wars and rumors of wars uh, until the Lord Jesus Christ comes and settles the score. So most Americans don't even realize some of these things, uh, and I'm sure many of us in here probably do, but, <clears throat> but I don't say all that to scare people. It's simply the reality of, of uh, the country that's really divided and weakened and resolved uh, to address the real crisis instead of you know, many faux crises that we seem to be fighting all the time. The conditions were very similar as Judah prepared to go into captivity. So the things, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon said that it's true. And in Jeremiah chapter 6, I'm going to put it on the screen, but if you, if you want to turn to that in your Bible, it'd be good to have it marked. It might be one you want to mark for the future. Jeremiah 6 and verse 13, this is what the, the, the Lord said through Jeremiah. And I, I'm actually I just finished reading, uh, or I finished reading Isaiah, and now I'm in Jeremiah. I read this uh, last week, I think it was, or a couple weeks ago. But Jeremiah 6.13 says, For the least of, From the least of them unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. Now, he's talking about the, uh, the leadership of Judah. And he sa- and, and from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. He's like, you can't trust the men of God either. They're not, they're not good men. They have healed uh, also the hurt of the daughter of my people, slightly saying... Look what they said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. You don't want to proclaim peace when there is no peace, right? You don't want to have a false peace when there's a threat of war. Uh, were they, it says, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, right? No, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. And, of course, what he's talking about, and as you continue through Jeremiah, is going to fulfill the prophecies of Babylon, right? Nebuchadnezzar is going to come, and he's going to take them over. Some of the people that were going to be judged were those in in positions of authority uh, religiously in the nation of Israel who uh, were priests, and some were prophets. And they were not being honest about the threat that was around them. There was a real threat. Uh, They were saying, oh, peace, peace. But God's like, no, there's not peace. You guys have not. Why isn't there peace? Because there's external threats? No, that's not why there's not peace. There's not peace because there's an inward problem. There's been a bomb. No one's blushing over the sin that exists within the leadership of the churches, or in this case, the, the nation of Israel. I'm, I'm extrapolating out what I'm thinking in my heart. And so there's, there's sin that's, that exists. And, and, and you know what? We have to address it, and we have to do what God wants us to do and be honest about who God has saved us to be. And so after 100 years of Gentile powers warring over the territories of the planet, we are no closer to peace today than we were in 1918 when H.G. Wells wrote that book, The War to End War. That's just, it's just not. And we know that the war that needs to be fought is actually not just a, a, is not for world peace. The United Nations gets billions of dollars a year, and I could have given you statistics about them, and not everything they do is bad, by the way. Actually, some of the things they do are, are, are necessary, and I'm glad somebody's doing it. Um, I've been in situations personally where I, I, I've, I've been in refugee camps and things. I'm like, man, I'm thankful they're here. I'm glad that they have been able to facilitate some of the things. So God's used some of those things for the gospel's sake, even uh, even though they're totally anti-Christ in their, in their agenda. God still uses that stuff. But at the end of the day, the United Nations, right, they're not going to beat any... Uh, swords into plowshares. It's just not going to happen. They are not going to bring peace to this earth no matter what verses they plaster on, plaster on their uh, artifacts in front of their buildings. And so we're going to have to trust Jesus for that, but I'll get to that in a minute. The second thing that, we, that needs peace today is not just world peace, and it, the world does need peace. And I would say absolutely. Uh, the second thing is social peace. Uh, again, after a hundred years of humanistic philosophies, polarizing people politically and ethnic, ethnically, you know, nothing has changed. It's amazing. It would seem that after defeating communism and fascism in the middle part of the last century, uh, that that would all die a slow death, but it hasn't, has it? Today, humanistic philosophies that uh, were birthed in the 1800s from German rationalism have infected almost every nation of the world. It's unbelievable to me to watch. From outright tyrannical oppression to divisive critical race theory, um, you know, society seems to be far, far, far from peace. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, media sources, they don't help you at all. They just stir it up. And, and really what they do is they just simply add more fuel on the fire to garner more clicks, more clicks, more clicks. Because at the end of the day, Paul told us, it's the love of money. that's the root of all evil. And so now it's fashionable. It's fashionable to be victimized. And I'll get to that in a minute. And, and, and I don't have to comment on this for very long because this is stuff you guys, we're all living out in real time right now anyway. And uh, And at the end of the day... Uh, a lot of the tension that is is uh, drummed up uh, by dividing people, which whether it 's over uh, you know whether you wear a mask you don 't wear a mask, whether you 've been vaccinated, you haven 't been vaccinated, whether you're, uh, you if know, you 're down with BLm you 're not down with BLM or whatever you know if there 's not this it 's going to be that just over and over again it just gets how many of you are tired of this i mean it 's wearisome it does it wears on you after a while, and uh, the reality is as Christians though, we have peace we can't let, you can 't allow that stuff. To dominate your mind, you just cannot. But you know what? We still do. It does affect us. Eventually, um, that will be the problem. There's the, the, it will be a crime not to be impacted. Right? That's kind of how Daniel and his guys were. They're like, "Well, you know what? You guys, you pagans, do what you do. But we're just going to follow. We're going to follow God here, and this is what we're going to eat, and this is how we're going to pray." And that became the problem. And so, just you know, that's okay if that happens. It happens, and we'll hopefully we we'll all be faithful to the end and love God and love people. But at the end of the day. The reality is this, society needs peace, don't they? They're not going to find it in a bunch of humanistic philosophies that haven't worked for over a hundred years. They've failed at every turn. And yet, that's what the world does, because it's really not about helping people, it's about power, isn't it? Okay, the third thing that needs peace is not just the world and not just society, but the family. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. I could go on all day about the world and society, but I, yeah, I think you guys know enough about that. You probably know more than I do. Okay, so, so family peace, so that's important. This is stuff that really affects us. So I'll just threw some stats on here, and you can see them on the board too. Uh, family peace, just when you look at domestic violence in Missouri, 41.8% of Missouri women and 35.2% of Missouri men experience intimate partner physical violence. Now, they have to say intimate partner physical violence because a lot of these people are not married, uh, which is half the battle um, and they don't and they're because they're not living inside God's will, but the reality is is there's there, within the inside of these relationships there is uh we're talking about violent fighting and warring in 2018 there were eighty nine reported domestic violence uh, related homicides. that's terrible. I just did a funeral yesterday from a young lady shot in the head by her 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 boyfriend for 13 years or allegedly shot in the head. And so, that's terrible. I mean, what kind of, of a man? Wow. Um, terrible. That's wicked. Terrible. That is dark sin. So, man, what's going on? Between 2006 and 2015, there were 13,610 active, uh, 13, active protection orders in the National Crime, Inform, Crime Information Center, for Missouri, 4, 5,436 of those had uh, disqualifying Brady Indicator 5, which I don't know what that means, but it's, uh, you can look that up. I got all those stats from the ncadv.org. Um, <clears throat> and so and another thing that maybe you didn't know is that one in three women and one in four men in the United States have experienced uh, some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. So on a typical day, local domestic violence hotlines receive 19,159 calls, approximately 13 calls every eight minutes. In 2018, domestic violence accounted for 20% of all violent crime. And uh, abusers access the firearms increase the risk of of, uh, intimate partner female um, uh, homicides at least five-fold, or at least engagements with a a weapon. So uh, it's terrible. And you can read the rest from there. 65 percent of all murder suicides involve intimate partners. 96 of those victims are females. So the females, the weaker, the ones that we—and this is, of course, I'm going to say something politically correct, incorrect—but the ones that we should be protecting ends up the ones that we because they're the precious vessel, the weaker vessel, um, ends up getting uh, assaulted and abused. That's terrible. Now I say things like that. I have to be careful because I know right now in this room, a room this size. There's a good chance there's maybe one or more, maybe more, and this is so many people, that you could be actually right now engaged in some sort of messed up, physical, abusive relationship with your spouse. One in five in Missouri. One, if, I mean, that's crazy. That's just if you're a guy. Maybe you're, some wife's beating you over the head. Actually, I've seen that in my neighborhood one time. I've seen a husband getting abused, and it wasn't me, praise God. But uh, <clears throat> uh, it was really not funny at all. But uh, we're, not used to, we're not used to that. You think about the women. Obviously, the the grossest flagrant violations and homicides happen primarily to women, 90%. That's terrible. And there's just no justification for that. Why is that happening? Well, I think because people need peace. They need peace. They can't be at peace with God. They're going to go to war with the people around them, even the people that's closest to them. Even the innocent, even child fatalities occur. Five children die every day from child abuse and neglect just saw a thing flash across my uh, news feed the other day about some young lady, and everybody's like, I think it was a three-year-old toddler. Mother killed her. Nobody, I mean, there's no what, why, how. It doesn't make sense. More than 70% of children who who died as a result of child abuse are neglected, and they were three years or younger. Man, that's staggering. Around 80% of children... Uh, maltreatment in in, uh, maltreatment facilities involve at least one parent uh, as perpetrator and there's more stats and you can read them for time's sake i'm going to move on Uh, you can find those stats uh, as well online very easily but i will say this uh, just this week we had another school shooting and when you dig into it it appears that the parents were just negligent they knew their kid had a loaded gun at school and the, the he was having, and he's, he's, he's literally crying out for help. The teacher finds it, the counselor finds it, and they're like, oh, I'll just go on back. What's that? That's a lack of parenting, it's a lack of loving. There's some problems. So as we draw closer to the, the coming of Christ, you know, dr- domestic tranquility will continue to be disrupted by the influence of technology, and I'm going to say that, uh, because technology has d- dramatically impeded the way children are influenced with information. Before the advent of the internet, information was disseminated and filtered somewhat through the parents and educators. Uh, Now, information that used to be, you know, take you decades to obtain. I mean, I had to work hard. I was telling my son this, you know, uh, these phones, I used to have, a. I I literally had to have Rolodex when I was a kid. I was logging names and phone numbers and I kept it with me because, uh, you know, the little thing, you push the thing and the thing flopped up and you adjusted it, you know. You're like you guys are like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I know. We used to, have, used to actually use a pen and a pencil and write information down and keep it on paper. Because there was no electronic database to put it in at that time. And so, you know, now there's all that you can just, there's so much information. You don't have to ask your dad how to work on the car or the plumbing or to build anything. You just Google up a YouTube video. And it's going to be, you know it's different than what your dad said anyway. So just go with the YouTube, right? And, uh, and so you see what I'm saying, is it used to take some time to get to information, and because of that, you had to, you had to be respectful of those that provided it, because information just wasn't free-flowing. You just couldn't get to it like that. You had, you, you had to go through the processes of getting the information, or doors would close. Uh, and nowadays, you know what? Anyone, anywhere can get information any way they want, and you know what that does? It's like printing too much money. What happens is, When you print too much money, what happens to the value of money? goes down. When you just blast information out there, what happens to the value of the information? The important information loses its value. You know, one, the most important information that you can have in the world? I'm holding in my hand right here. Too much information. People are like, the Bible? Ah, I got the internet. The internet can't touch this. And that's not just the MC Hammer lyric. All right, so <clears throat> um, It's true. So now information that used to take us decades to obtain and retain is, only, is available instantly. And, uh, and so there used to be a phrase that was popular, even romanticized in the 50s, called Father's, Father Knows Best. But in the 60s, rebellion was romanticized. And in the uh, 2000s, um, in 2020, the patriarchy is often despised. See the, the slide? And uh, <clears throat> even though it's the number one reason that homes are broken and children are wayward. And all those statistics I spewed out a minute ago about all this violence and all of these ch- child abuse situations, you know where a lot of that can stop? With men. Men being men. Men, be, men being godly men. You know, not being machismo men, but men being like Christ. Today, if you're a man that's faithful and you're you're solid with Christ, you're solid with your wife, you're solid with your kids, and you're an idiot, and you're a jerk. You know what? You need to go get drunk, you need to lie with every woman out there that you can, and you need to be irresponsible with your family, because that's cool. You know it's not, and it's never been cool. But you know what? The world will sell you on that. There's very very few uh, blockbuster movies, casting the lead male figure in that category of a guy who's faithful to God, faithful to his wife, and faithful to his family. No, it's not, you're not going to see it. But anyway, I digress. That wasn't in my notes either. So the attack on fatherhood, is, is, it's, not, it's, it's not just you know, casual. That's demonic because it erodes at the very design that God has for the family. So listen to what the Scripture says lies in store for, before, in the coming tribulation. And we're starting to see it already. In Micah chapter 7 and verse 6, the Bible says, For the son dishonoreth the father, and the daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are the men of his own house. You know why you don't have to worry about Russia or China? Because you got enough on your hands just dealing with the battle going on in your house. Mm-hmm. It's true, isn't it? The devil likes it that way. The nuclear family? who It's historically, as it's been defined for thousands and thousands of years, is a father and a mother, I might add. Male and female created he, them. You know, 30 years ago when I got saved, I didn't know why it said male and female created he, them. But 30 years later, now I know. Because we've redefined even what family is. Because we're not at peace with the way God created the family. We're not at peace with the way God created the roles. Now, I don't say we at the church here, but I'm talking about our society as a whole. And then the family's under attack. And so, man, God chose to use the family unit, which he designed and ordained in Genesis, to deliver his son. We are talking. We haven't gone away from Christmas, just hang with me. When God said, I'm going to bring the Messiah to the world, he didn't, he didn't get a same-sex couple. He didn't deliver him through... Uh, he didn't airdrop him through an Amazon airlift. No, he brought him through, the, through, the, through a woman and he put him in a nuclear family because that's the way God's designed it. He's designed it that way from the beginning. And I know this is elementary. It's elementary, but you can see the problems that occur and the peace that's lost when we just step over the Bible and do things the way we want to do them. Today, our children from the earliest years are being fed false information about the role of men and women and mothers and fathers and the function of the family and what a family is and how it functions. If you're probably 25 and older, you're like, well, you know, I know all that. But there are, there are young people that don't know all that because the information they're getting and receiving is coming in ways that is, is, is eclipsing what their parents tell them because as I pointed out earlier, the way people receive information has changed. So the authority changes. And that, that causes problems for the fourth point, which is individual peace. You know, the essence of, of the need for peace is found in the individual. There's a phrase, and I remember, man, I remember when I was lost, I lived this. Misery loves company. Isn't that true? Like when you're miserable, you like to find other miserable people so you can commiserate together, right? You can say, man, they're just as jacked up as I am. Woohoo! let's go get drunk or whatever. And uh, that's, what, that's what you do when you're lost. I mean, many people do. I, don't, I can't speak for you, but, but you just, misery loves company. And uh, you even see it in the church today a lot. I, even, I can see that tone a lot of, a lot of Christian, uh, you know, a lot of pop Christian stuff. Why? Because people aren't experiencing victory in Christ, for goodness sake. They don't have joy. They don't have love. They don't have the fruit of the Spirit. So now everything is a negative, Nancy. Oh, man, we're all victims. Wait a minute. Last time I checked, we were victors. Last time I checked, we could walk in the spirit and not fulfill us lust of the flesh. Last time I checked, we were on mission. We weren't all victims. I can't. It makes me want to barf. Today, victimhood is promoted as fashionable and unavoidable. It is. Victimhood is promoted as fashionable and unavoidable. And I don't have time to go over all the statistics that, that show that, but I do. There, are, there is a direct correlation between the perpetual decline of individual happiness... However that's measured, and the influence spent on the Internet, there is a, a website, and if you go to our website on this sermon, I put, the, I, put the actual, I downloaded a little like five-page document that you can read, and, it has, and you can get, find the links to this. It's on, uh, on uh, Worldhappiness.report. And uh, you can go and find the, the sad state of happiness in the United States uh, sets the, the role of digital media. It's the actual long title of this thing. But what you find if you go through that, and it's actually very educational, you will see graphs. As technology has increased over the last several years and the arc is going like this, it's a direct cross-section with individual happiness, however they measure those factors. It's not a Christian website, it's just secular. But it is just like, I mean, the more information people are getting, but guess what? The more they're losing their joy, their happiness. It just is what it is. And this is individual happiness. This isn't your family. This is just mental, what they would call in that world, probably mental health. So these stats, everything I've talked about too, this is pre-COVID for the most part. Because since COVID's come, nobody's had time and been able to go to work and be able to collect more stats. So I would promise you right now, I won't promise you this because I don't know. I would guess, I would hazard to guess that uh, things are worse now, two years after COVID, than they were when a lot of these stats were collected. And so, because people just are, they're, they're kind of living in a dark hole. So the mental health and stability has been impacted by the, uh, the uh, inundation of negative information. COVID and lockdowns have impacted people negatively worldwide. All this in spite of the fact, and this is what's crazy, this is one of the most prosperous and easy times to live in history. I mean, really. It's like, you would think the sky is falling. You would think that you're going to walk out the door and fall down dead. But really, this is one of the most prosperous times the world has ever seen. And that's unbelievable. And uh, it's un- it is. It's crazy. It's, it's relatively peaceful, even though there's all these wars. And so this is because our individual peace cannot be obtained through social construct. It is found, and I'm giving away the sermon, but I'm almost done. It's found in the person of Christ. It's the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, who... Who, who has proclaimed to be our peace. Now, in Ephesians 2.15, the Bible says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that even, uh, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances or to make in himself of twain one new man. Wow, what does all that mean? So making peace. You know what it is? Because God was able to fulfill the, the law that condemns us that we can have peace with him because he is the fulfillment. He is our peace. That brings me to point B. The, the antithesis of peace is simply war. The antithesis of peace is war. It's a true saying that if you don't know Jesus, you don't know peace. War, as defined by Merriam-Webster, is the antithesis. It is the antonym for peace. I found that interesting. It didn't matter if it was 1828 or whatever I googled up on today's website. Merriam-Webster is going to say, antonym for peace equals war. It's war. So let's talk a little bit about war. Uh, not just as it's defined, but as it's described. Because why do people lose their peace? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a good question. Because it's all described for us. There was war in heaven, right? Lucifer's rebellion, Isaiah 14, 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne Above the stars of God, I will sit upon the mountain of the congregation, on the sides of the north. I will, I will, right. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High God. He wanted to run his own show. There was a war in heaven. We know how it ends in Revelation chapter twelve. He's gonna, he's, his authority, and he started as an anointed cherub. He ends up as like as a as a worm. And uh, the Revelation chapter twelve verse seven says, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought against his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And, great, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. There will be a day when the Antichrist, when, I'm sorry, when the ancient war that Lucifer started in, uh, in Genesis chapter one will be quarantined to earth just before Satan's final defeat and it's all going to come down in that other war i mentioned in the battle of armageddon and then he'll be put in to the uh, he'll be in chains until the end of the millennium well i don't want to get too far into that i just want to go to the next point but my point is war in heaven's how this all started satan wanted more he wanted more he wasn't content godliness with contentment is great gain he wasn't godly and he wasn't content for sure even though he was the anointed cherub War in Eden was another problem. The first war occurred before Adam and Eve were even created in Eden. People don't know that, but Ezekiel twenty-eight thirteen says, "Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering: the, the uh, sardius, topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set thee so." Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. There's where your violence comes from. And thou hast sinned, therefore. I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of brightness. I will cast thee to the ground, I will lay thee before kings, that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by a multitude of thy iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore I will bring, thou, uh, bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. His end's coming. Notice, though, that he started in Eden. The second campaign in the war in Eden came in Genesis 3, one. Genesis 3, one. Now that serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. You see, Satan has been getting man to question God's authority ever since the opening sentence that he spoke to Eve. And that brings war in the family. Because the war between God and man disrupted the peace of heaven. But that was not good enough for Satan. He had to introduce it to the first family. And they were, <clears throat> they were dumb enough, just like we are, to fall for it. Even Eve doesn't defer to her husband right? when she's confronted in the garden. She takes matters into her own hands and adds to what God said. So now she becomes a legalist, imposing things on the scripture that are not intended. Genesis 3.2 says, "...and the woman said unto the serpent, we may, <clears throat> "'We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden.'" But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, "Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so, of course, what she do? She added, Neither shall you touch it. She was right on up to that point, but she added something to it. She added rules that weren't there. And, and five simple words, the number of death, was all that Satan needed to corrupt the fellowship between the father and his son Adam. Satan uh, insinuates that God's holding out some secret knowledge. Remember all of 1 John, we talked about Gnosticism. What was that about? A secret knowledge, a mystical knowledge of God. He's like, hey, you don't really know God like I do. What he said to you, you can't trust. He's holding out on you. He knows that the day that you eat thereof, you're going to have the knowledge of the gods. And so Satan insinuates that he's holding out. And of course, the rest is history. Adam didn't stand up to Satan either. I don't know why, but he joined in the fun. And there you have it. The war in heaven is now transferred to earth and thereby the family uh, through the fall of Adam and Eve. So we don't go past the first generation before we see the outcome of the rebellion uh, in the seated, that was seated in the heart of man. In Genesis 4 and verse 8, we see that Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Capital murder right off the bat. We all understand this war in the family of man has been passed on from generation to generation because we understand at its core, man is at war with God because he's sinful. And that's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Because by nature, we are children of wrath. We can clean it up, we can put perfume on it, whatever we want, but until we come to the place that we're born again, we still bear this sinful image of Adam's fallen race. And murder, if it's not in our hands, it's in our heart. And so we have, to be, we have to be honest about that because that's why Jesus Christ came. He didn't just come to say, hey, I'm the Prince of Peace. He came to reconcile us, as we've already read in Ephesians, and make, uh, make himself the, uh, the advocate, the propitiation we talked about in 1 John, so we could obtain that peace. But the biggest practical battle that we're going to find when it comes to this, this uh, war is the war in the flesh. The same methods that worked on Eve in the garden work on us. We saw in 1 John 2.16, several weeks back, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And we talked about that world system. Man, our flesh is attracted to that. Paul was very transparent about this war that went on in his flesh, that disrupted his peace. In Romans 7.21, it says, I find the law then that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring, warring, warring against the law of my mind. It's the opposite of peace, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Then he goes on to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He, He puts out this dichotomy that my flesh loves to sin, but my mind and my heart is sanctified to God. And he gives God the glory and the credit for that. In the next chapter, chapter 8, right? We're on victory lane. God's love is, is unstoppable. Chapter, uh, it's, it's, it's no surprise that this conflict is mentioned just before Paul lays out the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the works of the flesh then in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians 5, he says in verse 16, This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Why? For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. And then what's he go in to talk about? The works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace. Right? There's a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. He's laying it out in Galatians. There's a war going on in our flesh. But you know what? The war as applied in heaven. The war is first spiritual and intended to divide. Genesis 1.1, heaven is united. In Genesis 2.1, the heavens are divided. And they're in three sections, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12.2. There's a third heaven. There's a second heaven. There's this atmosphere around the earth. This is not surprising, as the temple and the tabernacle model all three heavens. The outer court, the Gentile court, with the brazen altar and the labor. The inner court, the holy place where the golden table and the golden candlesticks and the altar of incense are located. The holy of holies. Behind the veil with the Ark of the Covenant, the outer court is where the Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain here on Earth. The second heaven is where Jesus traversed to get to the Holy of Holies, or through the get to the Holy of Holies and present himself to the Father after his resurrection. There's a war in the world. At the end of the day, all conflict in this world is ultimately the result of Satan's rebellion and man's sin nature, and it just gets extrapolated up to the national level. And of course, that fight over. The Jerusalem, ultimately, and God's plan for his chosen seed. Not seeds, the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, and where he's going to rule and reign on this earth in the coming millennium. And then the war in our heart, which is most practical. That's what robs our peace, is our resistance to the words of God. The priests who knew the law uh, could not stand the fact that a bunch of ignorant and unlearned men had been spending time with Jesus and had the audacity to get up and speak with authority the things from God's word. They were so angry. The Bible says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 33, this is after the resurrection, after his ascension, after Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit of God empowers in, uh, in, in uh, the apostles, they're preaching the word of God, and the Jewish leadership gets so upset that Acts 5.33 says, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Interesting how they became murderous against their brothers. How did, why did they do that these guys weren't they didn't they weren't part of the sanhedrin they're just a bunch of guys from galilee and from from here and there and and they were following this guy named jesus why they they didn't like the power that came from the words of god they didn't like that and it cut them to the heart later on um, there would be a man <coughs> over, overseeing the death of the, of this deacon stephen who who he ended up uh, consenting to his death because his unassailable power and his rhetoric, his rhetorical answer to the leadership of Israel was so powerful, I don't have time to read it, but you go back and read Acts chapter 7, and you look, at the, you look at Stephen, and he is just preaching a historical sermon from Genesis all the way up to Revelation. He talks about the coming of the Lord, and he's telling them, you guys are the ones that killed Jesus. You guys are, it's on your, his blood's on your hands. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him, with their teeth. You know what the Word of God does? It cuts to the heart, doesn't it? This war is really going on in the heart of man. That's my point. When the Word of God is preached, man, sometimes, I remember when I was lost, I would get angry sometimes. I would want to run from the Word of God. Why? Because there's an internal war in in the heart, and God is calling all men everywhere to repent, and He's calling them, and He's calling them, and the man is fighting, and they're fighting, and He just needs us to stop and die to ourselves and allow Him to win the war Of the of Tarsus was one of those, a very religious guy, a very righteous fellow in the sense of the Old Testament law. And yet, God was calling him because he too was a murderer, like Cain in the garden, and he had murdered Stephen. And he could not shake that truth from his heart because he knew in his heart, regardless of what he would say to everybody else, and regardless of all his authority, he knew in his heart, as God would prick him in the heart, that man was a righteous man, that man was a righteous man. That man was a righteous man. I guarantee you, there's a lot of Muslims in the Middle East that were working for ISIS or whoever was killing all these Christians. And you know what, right now, in their heart, if they're not already dead and in hell, the Holy Ghost is pricking them in the heart and he's saying, those were righteous kids. Those were righteous mothers. Those were righteous men that laid their lives down like lambs. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is calling all men everywhere to himself. There's a battle in the heart. And God has no desire to war with us in our heart. He wants to bring peace to our heart, but we have to be contrite. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15 says this, For thus saith the high and lofty one, one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I... Uh, Be always wroth, for the spirit should fail before me, and the souls which I have made. For for the iniquity of of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him. I hid me, and was wroth. And he went on forwardly, as in the way of his heart. I have seen his comforts (coughs) unto him, uh, to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace, to him that is afar off, to him that, that is near, saith the Lord." I will heal him, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Man, I bet those apostles, when they were out on that stormy waters, and they thought they were going to sink, and all of a sudden, Jesus wakes up, and he says, peace, be still. Boom. They were thinking about the power of God to bring peace, peace. Interestingly enough, we read a passage earlier in Jeremiah where religious men were saying, peace, peace. But judgment was coming. What's the difference? It's the author. Who's the one authoring the word peace? There's coming a time, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2, when a man of sin is going to show up riding a white horse and offer peace to the world. The wrong peace. You better know the Prince of Peace. You better know the true Messiah. You better understand how important Christmas is because Messiah has already come. And he is the Prince of Peace. He has fulfilled uh, the, all the requirements to cover our sin and break peace to us, as it says in Ephesians. And as we finish up, the need for peace is evident in every individual, every society and nation. And so we have the promise of peace. We read Isaiah 9, 6, but the thesis here is Jesus was and will be the fulfillment of God's promise of peace. The promise of peace is found, interestingly enough, in problems. Where do you find, where do you find peace? You got to go to a desert island. Do you got to go to some place in your mind? Do you got to escape? You got to get away. You know. On what is that Southwest Airlines? No, you don't. Jesus steps right into the problem. Like every good plot, the hero enters the story to save the day. You know it. In the garden, Jesus steps right into the mess. He calls out to Adam. and He calls out to Eve. And he brings them together. He lets them know you're not irredeemable. He rips off their self-righteousness and he takes off those fig leaves and he says, let's just deal with the naked truth. You have fallen. And let me kill something innocent. I believe it was probably a lamb. And let me clothe your nakedness. And let me speak words of truth to you. And let me give you the consequences of your sin. And oh, by the way, Satan, I got something for you too. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You see, this is the promise of peace. The first promise of peace that we see written in the Bible of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, is found right in the midst of a wreck. And Jesus speaks it. He says, Hey, by the way, Satan, your demise is coming. Through the seed of a woman. Or through the through the womb of this woman. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna put Enmity between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We're going to war, pal, and I'm going to win. That's really what Jesus is saying. I'm going to take the weakest thing that you picked on here, and I'm going to use her. I'm going to use this seed of a man, and I'm going to bring forth your demise. I mean, for Jesus to be incarnated, we'll get to that next week, though, he had to, we know for Hebrews says, he became a little lower than the angels. He had to humble himself and put some things aside so that he could dwell in skin before he was glorified and ascended. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. You see, the, the problem of peace was getting solved. It was getting pronounced. It was being promised right there. Point B, the promise of peace is found in prophecy. So from there, Satan heard the word loud. He's been attacking uh, the seed of, of Adam ever since. But that hasn't stopped the prophecy of the Prince of Peace from coming to pass. The prophecy of the Prince of Peace comes through the, the womb of a woman, Genesis 3.15. The prophecy of the Prince of Peace comes through the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12. The prophecy of the Prince of Peace comes through the seed of Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Judah, and then David. Right? We've got all the verses there. We don't have time to look at all those, but you can go home and read those. The prophecy of the Prince of Peace comes through a virgin, Isaiah seven fourteen. I mean, literally, his name is given, Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is God with us. The prophecy that was... that, that uh, The promised seed would be born in, in uh, Bethlehem came to Micah 5, 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet thou shalt, uh, shalt he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler of Israel whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. You see, these things are just some of the prophecies that went before and were fulfilled in the life of Christ, the Prince of Peace. And all the prophecies concerning Jesus being the Lamb of God addressed how He became the Prince of Peace, uh, not to mention Isaiah 9-6, which we've already read, nail Him exactly to who He was, and they came forth. When Jesus returns in His just wrath to make war, He is called the Lamb as well as the Word of God. He is the Prince of Peace, and He will end the war By having a war, that will literally end all wars. And what he started in Genesis chapter 1 will be concluded in the book of Revelation chapter 19. So the promise of peace is found in a person. Now I'm getting ahead of myself for next week, but I want to tie these together. The Prince of Peace paid a high price for our peace. Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You know what it says there? You've heard this probably. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Beloved, the reason that we have peace is because it's been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that he suffered was not because he did anything wrong, is because he was purchasing our peace. It was the faith of the Prince of Peace that justifies us. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The promise of peace is fulfilled in Jesus Christ in John fourteen twenty seven, He says, peace I leave with you, my peace. Remember earlier I said there's a peace that this world offers and then there's this peace that Jesus offers. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth you, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You know, Jesus left his peace with us when he ascended and he sent the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2. The person of peace is in us if you're born again. If you're not saved, the reason that you have so much trouble and so much anxiety and all of these things, it's, it's labeled. There's all these labels today for all this stuff. At the end of the day, it's because you don't know peace. And the only way to know peace is to know Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. He is our peace. He is our joy. He has left that for us. And we must then walk in the Spirit. Christian, you're like, man, I'm not having peace. Well, it's as simple as this. We're either walking in the Spirit or we're fulfilling the lusts of our flesh. We've made a decision. And that decision wasn't made externally. It was made internally. It was made in the heart. Because the war for peace has and always will rage in the heart. And beloved Jesus Christ has won that war. We need to obtain the victory through our Lord Savior in Jesus Christ, who is the promise of peace. He is the prince of peace. So the promise of peace can be found in Jesus Christ, the person promised in the scripture to deliver us. He is the one. When he's, They didn't say, uh, man, Jesus, uh, you know, now I'm butchering the verse. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. That's not what they said. They said, and on earth peace. And on earth, peace. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the peace of the world, of, this, of the, the Prince of Peace, had been born on earth. Beloved, that's the only way you're going to find peace is through Jesus Christ. And I know if you're saved, you know that intellectually. But guess what? When you go to Christmas dinners and you go to office parties and you go here and you go there and as everybody's charging up their credit cards and waiting on Amazon to deliver everything, you ain't going to find any peace in any of it. You're only going to find peace in one person. And that's the Prince of Peace. Out on the connections counter, I got these little cards I made up and on the back's a QR code. Man, you should take some of those out and invite people to our Christmas Eve service. You know, a lot of people won't go to church, but they will come to Christmas Eve and they'll come to Easter. And go out and and don't just invite your family and your friends, do that too. Uh, They're in the Amen Choir probably. Go find somebody you don't know. Start a conversation. Grab that little card and just say, hey, I wanna invite you to something. It's really kind of nondescript. On purpose, because you might have to talk to them about what it is you're inviting them to and where it is and when it is. Yeah, they can hit the QR code on the back, but the reality is you want to start talking to them and build a relationship because people are lonely and they're isolated because they're in a prison without peace. And they need somebody to bust through to them and invite them to a place of peace. Invite them. We'll have a great short service. I know it's hard to believe if I'm preaching, but it'll be short. It'll be the point and it'll be intended to bring peace to the heart of people that we know are living in turmoil. They're living in prison and, having, and they have no peace. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this time to meet, to talk about the promise of peace and how it's been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the first salvo as we look next week at the person of peace and how he, he came to this earth and was incarnated. God became flesh and dwelled among us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to to talk about these practical things today. I pray, God, that we would do something about what we've heard, that we